Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This is a science podcast for January 12th, 2024. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have journalist Rich Stone. He's back with news from his latest trip to Ukraine. This week, he shares stories about environmental damage from the war, particularly the grave consequences of a dam explosion. Next on the show, producer Kevin McLean talks with researcher Nardi Gomez-Lopez about signaling between fetus and mother during childbirth and how understanding this crosstalk might one day help predict premature labor. Finally, in a sponsored segment from our custom publishing office, Director of Custom Publishing, Erica Berg, talks with researcher Andrew Pospisilic about how epigenetics stabilizes particular gene expression patterns and how these patterns impact our risk for disease. We've talked about the war in Ukraine a number of times on the show with a science focus. We talked about how the war has affected science in Ukraine. Can scientists keep doing their jobs? How have facilities fared? We also had a segment on how Russian scientists are leaving that country because of disagreements with government policy and the prosecution of the war, as well as about you know the state of science and scientists who have remained in Russia. This week, we're going to hear about the environmental toll this war has had on Ukraine. Contributing correspondent Rich Stone visited in the fall. Hi, Rich. Welcome back to the Science Podcast. Hi, Sarah. Glad to be back. The focus, as I mentioned in the intro, is about the environment impact of the war and the scientists. But we should really just mention that this war has had an immense impact on the lives of people in Ukraine, the infrastructure. You know, there's been many deaths. So we can't just ignore that and not only talk about science. For sure. Hundreds of thousands of people have died during the war. It's uh, been a tragedy for Ukraine and certainly the ecological consequences that we're going to talk about also affect people's daily lives. Yeah, for sure. So we're going to mainly talk about the loss of this dam in Ukraine that was holding back a lot of water and formed a reservoir. It was destroyed by a pair of explosions over the summer. Can you set the scene for us here? The Dnipro River flows through the heart of Ukraine, coming into the country from the north through Belarus into Ukrainian territory near Chernobyl, flowing through Kiev, and then down the middle of the country into the Black Sea. And it's one of the major rivers of Europe, not just Ukraine. During Soviet times, there were six dams, hydroelectric dams built on the Dnipro River. 
Kokoka Dam was the final dam and the one furthest downstream. And that's the one that was breached on June 6th of this year. Two explosions damaged the dam. There was a massive breach around 400 meters wide and floodwaters surged down into the lower Dnipro Basin, inundating uh, hundreds of square kilometers of land. Yeah, so there was a huge reservoir behind this. 400 meters is a huge breach. And all this water came out. What were the immediate effects? What do we know about the consequences of all this water flooding down like that? Well, let's start in the former reservoir, yeah, which mostly emptied out. That left a lot of dead fish on desiccated riverbed. It also left around 500,000 tons of zebra mussels rotting in the summer sun. Now, these are the bad guys in the Great Lakes in the U.S., but they're not the bad guys in Ukraine. They are pretty notorious invasive species in the U.S. and Ukraine. They occur naturally, and they're very important ecologically. They filter the water column. A lot of the water that was reaching the Kokovka Reservoir is runoff from agriculture, sewage, and so forth. And the zebra mussels were performing incredibly valuable ecosystem service in filtering this water before it flowed downstream. So immediately, you lost that ability to filter water entering the Dnipro River north of the former dam site. That's a big loss of uh, ecosystem service. And there are other effects as well. The emptying of the reservoir created this marshy area with ephemeral ponds and lots and lots of mosquitoes. So it was a big mosquito breeding area. Uh, so it was a, not a pleasant place to be this past summer, and it's going to take a long time for these dead organisms to, to decompose. Right. What about downstream from the reservoir, you know, where this water went? What do we know about the impact of the release there? Yeah, so it flooded around 80 settlements downstream, including a pretty major city of Kherson, which the Ukrainians had recaptured from Russia last fall. One of the scientific facilities that was in harm's way was an experimental sturgeon breeding center that would breed sturgeon that are adapted to the Dnipro River environment and release the sturgeon into the Dnipro reservoirs. The station took a direct hit, a four-meter wall of water came in, Wow! really devastated it, and wiped out the sturgeon, which are very sensitive to toxicants. There was a lot, you know, pollution in the water, heavy metals. Uh, one good thing is that the staff of the station evacuated in time. This is a very dangerous environment for study. If people want to go check on the water on the reservoir, some of this river is a front in the war. Were you able to talk to people about that experience? The Dnipro River forms more than 300 kilometers of the front line, actually. And so very dangerous to go to the Ukrainian side of the river and take samples. I interviewed uh, Volodymyr Osachi of the Ukrainian Meteorological Institute, and he and a colleague had gone down to take water samples during a break in the shelling, a predictable break in the shelling. They could see the other side of the riverbank less than a kilometer away. That's where the Russian troops were. And they had a terrifying experience. A reconnaissance drone flew right over them. They hit the ground and they felt very lucky that it had passed. But it really brought home how 
dangerous this work is. Uh, so they got their samples, brought it back to the lab, and they could study the nutrient profile of the water column. You mentioned visiting Odessa, which is where this water eventually makes its way to the Black Sea. Was it safer there? Were people able to do some of the research that we're talking about on those shores? Yeah, Odessa is far enough downstream and a little bit away from the river. So the Dnipro River empties into an estuary, and then the estuary empties into Odessa Bay. Odessa Bay is under Ukrainian control. It's a risky place in general because this is one of the major ports where Ukraine ships grain to Europe and other countries, and the Odessa port is often attacked by Russian drones and missiles. So in Odessa, there were frequent air raid sirens when I was there, but it's away from the front line, and scientists there are able to take samples. They observed how the fresh water came into the bay, reduced the salinity dramatically. Essentially, for a little while, it was fresh water at the mouth of the bay. That's really rough on an estuary. That is devastating for um, marine life acclimated to salinity that can't move. Mollusks, for example, fish can swim away. The cetaceans, dolphins, and porpoises can swim away. But uh, the benthic life was just devastated by that fresh water. That's a good segue. You do mention cetaceans in the Black Sea here. Has there been an impact from the war on dolphins or, or other mammals in the water? It's a little bit controversial. So there are three subspecies of cetaceans that are found endemic in the Black Sea. There are two kinds of dolphins and one kind of porpoise. Last year, there were claims that tens of thousands of cetaceans in the Black Sea had died because of the war, possibly because of acoustic damage due to high-powered sonar by Russian submarines, explosions of underwater mines, etc. It was a claim that has not held up under scrutiny. Certainly, there was an uptick in mortality last year during the early part of the war. That seems to have subsided. There were much fewer strandings reported this year. But the cause of the excess deaths last year is still under investigation. Researchers autopsy cetaceans when they can, but the preliminary findings have not pointed to a single factor for the deaths of the cetaceans. Another reason that researchers are doing this isn't just to monitor the situation with these ecosystems, but also to gather evidence for environmental war crimes. So how would these things fit in that category? This is being done at the um, central government level. The Ukrainian general procurator's office is gathering evidence of potential war crimes, environmental war crimes. So this evidence comes from various scientific studies. So the cetacean autopsies, all that data goes up to Kiev to build the case. The documentation of the ecological losses in the Dnipro River and the reservoir, the losses to irrigation, to municipal water supplies, et cetera. So Kokovka has had very broad consequences for, for the country. In addition to that, there's been destruction of protected forests. There's mines that have been laid, innumerable mines along the front line. And the shelling, the incredible impact of the shelling and contamination from artillery shells in farm fields and forests is something that is going to 
both be documented as potential war crimes, but also will take generations to clean up. Right. Yeah. The remediation is a really big ongoing and growing problem for, as you say, all these military actions and also these ecosystems that have been so damaged. What about the dam? Is that something that people want to put back? Because, you know, dam removal is a big issue in other places. The National Academy of Sciences of Ukraine has come up with a few different options that the government can consider. One is simply rebuild the dam pretty much as it was. And that would restore water regulation. So water releases during the dry season. It would maintain both the economic activity in the region and the ecosystems, the water needs of the ecosystems. There's a second idea that also involves rebuilding the dam and then also building an embankment about 50 kilometers long that would reduce the size of the reservoir, sheave off a big stagnant area of the former reservoir, just allow that to recover as steppe grassland. That is one option a lot of scientists favor. And then there's a third option, and that's just let nature take its course. This is essentially a dam removal that was not planned and has had devastating consequences. But people say, why not let the area rewild? There's a smaller number of scientists in Ukraine who favor that, and it appears the government is not disposed to allowing natural recovery that way. I think there is a intention at this point after the war to rebuild the dam. Even then, there could still be the opportunity to rewild parts of the lower Dnipro Basin, even with the rebuilding of the dam. So you actually have a sidebar with your story that just focuses on environmental contamination from radiation, which has been an ongoing concern since the very beginning of the war. I actually had, you were on the show, I don't know if it was the last time or the time before, where we just talked about Chernobyl. So yeah, like, what is the situation with all the uranium, the reactors, the milling facilities? Has anything happened there? Are there still concerns? Well, Ukraine's nuclear infrastructure has been under attack from the very beginning of the war. As you know, we did talk about Chernobyl last year. But there's operating nuclear power plants that have been under siege. So the Zaporizhia nuclear plant is the largest in Europe. It's now under Russian occupation. And the reactors have been shut down, but they still pose a potential risk if a missile were to hit either the reactor vessel or the spent fuel that's stored on site that could distribute contamination in the area. A lot of these concerns are dirty bomb sorts of concerns. As opposed to the ignition of fissile material, it's more, you know, this idea of a dirty bomb where you have a regular kind of bomb that just is contaminated with radioactive material and it's spread all over the place. Exactly. And uh, so some of the other nuclear plants in Ukraine, there's been missile and drone attacks near the plant that raise a lot of concerns. And there's just a lot of concern about the potential for what's called false flag operations. So Russia has propaganda has saying that Ukraine actually wants to detonate a dirty bomb on its own soil. Okay. So there's all this propaganda saying, oh, they're going to blame Russia if they do that. And the Ukrainians and their Western allies consider that propaganda as arranging the information space such that if there was a dirty bomb attack, perpetrated by Russia, Russia could say, you see, I told you so. Ukraine did this and blamed us. So uh, there's that. That concern has been around since early on in the war. 
and it has not gone away. And there's other sites as well that have been kind of under the radar, like you mentioned, the uranium milling site, one of the biggest uranium mills during the Soviet Union. It has been shut down, but there's still a lot of radioactive material on the site. And if that were hit by a missile, it would contaminate the local city. So lots of perils on the radioactive landscape in, in Ukraine. Definitely. Thank you so much, Rich. Rich Stone is a freelance science news writer. He's also the senior science editor for the Howard Hughes Medical Institute's Tangled Bank Studios, where he oversees science content for documentaries and other nonfiction productions. You can find a link to the story we discussed today at science.org podcast. Stay tuned for a chat with producer Kevin McLean and researcher Nardi Gomez-Lopez on reading the transcripts of conversations between fetus, placenta, and mom during childbirth. Researchers at Queen's University Belfast translate research into action and make sense of a rapidly changing world. They keep up with technological, societal, and economic advances and drive change through collaboration and real-world partnerships. Their research leads to critical breakthroughs in areas such as green technology, food and agricultural sustainability, peacebuilding, and healthcare. Queen's University Belfast network of international researchers has a reputation for global excellence. Over 99% of their research was assessed as world-leading or internationally excellent in REF 2021. The impact of this research is felt around the world. Visit qub.ac.uk to find out how Queen's University Belfast is bringing research to reality. Before we get to the next part of the show, I'd like you to consider subscribing to News from Science. Every week, we share stories from our news site, News from Science. Science journalists and editors kindly come on here and tell a story for our ears that they've been spending sometimes weeks or even months reporting and writing. If we were counting, our award-winning journalists publish as many as 20 stories a week, from tracking policy to investigations, international science news, and yes, when we find new secrets about mummies, we report on that too. It's an unbelievably valuable service. If you were here with us during early COVID days, you must have heard how plugged in and devoted our news team truly is. Please consider supporting nonprofit science journalism by becoming a subscriber for around 50 cents a week. To subscribe, go to science.org news, scroll down a little bit, and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news, scroll down a little bit, click subscribe on the right side. For both mother and fetus, there's a lot that has to go right in order for a healthy, spontaneous labor and birth to occur. Tissues and cells of multiple bodies have to be ready to go through a lot of changes in a short amount of time. Throughout childbirth, we know there's a complex process of cellular communication and signaling happening, and this maternal-fetal crosstalk is important but we don't know a lot about how it unfolds and the mechanisms that control it. This week in Science Translational Medicine, Nardi Gomez-Lopez and her colleagues used single-cell RNA sequencing of the placenta in order to investigate the critical cell types and communication pathways active during childbirth. Nardi, welcome to the Science Podcast. 
Thank you, Kevin, for having me. Great. Well, just to start off, childbirth or parturition is such a foundational part of life. Why is this an area that we don't know that much about? Is it just that it's complicated and tools haven't caught up or has there been less research focus on it historically? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's a combination of multiple factors. The first is it's a very complex process. It involves uh, multiple tissues from the mother and there is also signaling from the fetus. The placenta allowed us to interrogate both. That's the reason why we utilized the placenta. However, the mother has to undergo different processes such as contraction, cervical ripening, and there are different processes in the intramniotic space where the placenta is during gestation. Now, the technologies also have advanced. With single cell RNA sequencing, we can interrogate every single cell from a specific tissue. And in this case, the placenta, because it has maternal and fetal cells circulating in, in the maternal-fetal interface, then we can decipher every cell and how they are communicating with each other. Can you talk a little bit about what this maternal-fetal crosstalk entails and some of the challenges involved in studying that kind of communication? Yes. There is maternal-fetal crosstalk from very early in pregnancy. And this communications change throughout pregnancy. So we're speaking about 40 weeks of gestation in a normal term delivery baby. So those communications change. Also, there are processes that happen locally, like at the maternal-fetal interface where the placenta and the maternal tissues encounter, but also in the circulation. So studying maternal-fetal crosstalk, it's complicated because it involves different tissues and as well as different type of access to different compartments, and also depending on when are you investigating pregnancy. If you are investigating pregnancy complications associated with pregnancy loss, for example, early pregnancy, mid-pregnancy are ideal. In our case, we are focusing on parturition, so that's the reason why we utilize the tissues at the time of parturition, and we collect maternal blood samples before parturition, of course. Collecting samples and coordinating with all of those births must have been a really complicated process in itself, but the placenta really contains some of the key information you need for this work. What was that whole process like? In order to collect samples, it has to be, you know, taught well and coordinated with the physician scientists and also that is safe for the mother. But the reason why we focus on the placenta is because it's the most important organ during pregnancy and because it contains both maternal and fetal components. The placenta is a fetal organ, but because it has maternal blood circulating through specific areas that they are called intervillous space, then we can contain both maternal and fetal components. Also, the placenta is attached to the uh, myometrium. And the myometrium is the muscular wall of the uterus? Yes. And the, the decidualized myometrium is maternal tissue. So therefore, when we collect the placenta, we can collect also the decidua, which is of maternal origin. Okay, so you have all of these different tissues from the placenta, from the decidua, the intervillous space, components from both mother and the fetus. So what happens next? What do you need to find in all of those tissues? So we wanted to first identify what cells were present in the placenta. And to do so, we utilize different computational methods 
And the first challenge was to name those cells. What are these cells doing, right? So that was the difficult part to do because we didn't have a reference. So we utilized uh, information that was publicly available as well as our own biological concepts. These cells look like a T cell. These cells look like a trophoblast. You know, so that was a very time-consuming process. So that was the, the most difficult part, I think, to name what cell is what and what are, that cell is specifically doing. So we found multiple cell types, and there are many, many cell types that we still cluster them together because we couldn't assign a specific lineage to those cells. But we could say these cells look like they are immune cells. This looks like they are non-immune cells. And then we were more granular and we identify specific types of immune cells, specific types of non-immune cells. And of course, there were cells that we were expecting, like trophoblast, because it's the main cell in the placenta. All right. So you sort all of these cells by cell type and you look at the cells individually and that's what creates your, your reference map, your atlas. How, how does that process happen? So what we are doing with single cell RNA sequencing is dissociating the tissue Every single cell gets encapsulated into a droplet and there are specific reactions that occur in every cell and that will allow us to read the transcripts of the gene expression in every single cell. And through computational methods, then we can de decipher where each transcript came from or what is every cell doing in the transcriptome and how are these cells communicating, what are the mediators that these cells are producing, what are the receptors that these cells are expressing? And of course, they will change depending on different processes that occur in the specific tissue. And they will change with the process of labor. Right. So with this atlas, you're able to look at the changes throughout the process of labor. What did this help you understand? The next thing was, okay, now that we have this atlas, how are these cells changing when we compare tissues from women with labor and tissues with, from women without labor? So then we could see the majority of the cells obviously stay there, but their transcriptomic activity, so their gene expression changed with the process of labor. We already know that the process of labor involves inflammation, involves different types of biological processes. What we didn't know before this paper is where are these processes coming from? So now with single cell RNA sequencing and by us naming that specific cell type, now we know that those specific biological processes or specific transcripts come from that specific cell. Got it. Okay. So specific cells change throughout labor, and you can see that in the transcription activity and gene expression. But what about this communication part, this coordination between maternal and fetal tissues? Now we need to investigate whether they are talking between them, whether they are communicating. So there, there are a specific computational analysis that is basically works like a, like a cell phone. You want to call someone, so then you have their phone number, you dial the number, and that person answers. Cells communicate in the similar way. They have specific mediators that they are released if they want to call specific cells, and those other cells that are the responders, they will have to pick up the phone. And to do so, they will have to express a receptor. So we evaluated the cell-cell interactions by evaluating the ligands that a specific cell is producing and that the receiving cell is expressing. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's so interesting. So you're, you're sort of 
taking a look at, at who who is calling who and then seeing who is receiving that that call to sort of get a sense of this communication. Exactly. Right. Oh, you know, one of the things that I found really fascinating was the fact that you were able to detect signals in the blood of pregnant women who went on to have preterm births. Can you talk a little bit about that process and how that, that was possible? It is very well known. Many, many years ago, it was demonstrated by multiple smarter people than us that there were placental particles in the maternal circulation of women. So that was already known. Our thought process was if the placenta sheds out into the maternal circulation, are we able to identify signatures in the maternal circulation if we know what cell is sending the signal locally? Because we already have the identity of the cells in the placenta because we did single cell RNA sequencing. So what we did is to take those specific identities and look for them computationally in the maternal circulation. We first look at whether these signatures, we call them single cell signatures or placental signatures, were present in the maternal circulation of normal women. We found that that was the case. Then we, we look for whether these signatures were somehow different in women who had preterm labor. So preterm labor is contractions and basically activation of labor before 37 weeks of gestation. So we look at these, these women who had preterm labor and eventually delivered preterm. So we saw the signatures there. And then when we found our signatures to be somehow specifically changed in women with preterm labor who ultimately delivered preterm, we were very excited because we thought we may be able to generate a biomarker to identify women before they come with an episode of preterm labor. And we found that there were specific signatures that had a modest predictive value for preterm birth. And I want to emphasize that this is a modest predictive value. And what is exciting about our study, I think, is the proof of concept. We can identify these signatures. They may have a predicted value for a specific types of preterm births because preterm birth is so complicated. It's really interesting to know that it's possible to even detect that. Like you mentioned, this proof of concept. Why is knowing these signals potentially early on really useful? Do you think that there would be into the future something that could be done? If you know somebody may be predisposed or they might possibly have a preterm labor, what's helpful about knowing that that is a possibility earlier on in the pregnancy? The idea is to, to have a biomarker that will allow us to identify women who eventually deliver preterm. But now we we want to identify, with all these technologies that we have, a specific subsets of preterm birth. Maybe the reason why we have not been able to identify women who are eventually delivered preterm is because we are trying to identify all women who deliver preterm. So we believe that by dividing and these different etiologies, then we can maybe able to conquer a specific subset of preterm birth. So the idea is to tailor the therapies to a specific subsets of preterm birth. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and can you put in context, I mean, you mentioned preterm birth and preterm labor is, you know, there are many different things involved, many different potential causes, but it's a very serious complication that can happen and it continues to be a, a big problem worldwide. Is that right? Yes, it's a, in, in the United States, one of every 10 babies is born preterm. So that is pretty devastating. 
we have been focusing on investigating why Prittenberg happens and what are the etiologies, the mechanisms of disease that lead to Prittenberg. We know that in some cases, there are bacteria invading from the vagina into the cervix, into the amniotic cavity, and that causes infection, and that leads to preterm birth, and usually is associated with very early gestation. For those types of preterm birth in which we can identify bacteria in the amniotic cavity, there are a specific set of antibiotics to treat these women. So we know that the right regimen of antibiotics work for those women with infection in the amniotic cavity. But it's only a small portion of preterm births. The majority of preterm births, we don't know their etiologies. We also know that there is a subset of preterm births that have inflammation. The rest of preterm births, we don't know why they happened. It may be because the placenta is not working well. It may be because, you know, some type of immune uh, dysregulation. So the idea is to generate biomarkers that will allow us to identify these specific types of preterm birth so that we can have tailored strategies to treat that specific type of preterm birth. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Nardi. It was really great talking with you. Oh, thank you so much. Nardi Gomez-Lopez is a professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Pathology and Immunology in the Center for Reproductive Health Sciences at Washington University School of Medicine. You can find a link to the paper we discussed in Science Translational Medicine at science.org podcasts. Up next, we have a custom segment sponsored by the Van Andel Institute. Custom Publishing Director Erica Berg chats with researcher Andrew Pospisilic about how epigenetic patterns impact our risk for disease. The views expressed in the custom segments are those of the guests and do not reflect the policies of science or AAAS. Hello to our listeners and welcome to this sponsored interview from the Science AAAS Custom Publishing Office and brought to you by Van Andel Institute. I'm Erica Berg, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science. Today, I am delighted to welcome Dr. Andrew Pospisilic, a leader in the field of epigenetics. We'll be having a conversation about how our epigenetics makes it more or less likely that we'll go on to develop diseases such as diabetes, Parkinson's, or cancer. Thank you so much for joining, Andrew. Thanks. Great to be here. So my first question is just to get us all on the same page. Can you provide us a brief overview of what epigenetics is and how it regulates gene expression and metabolism. So epigenetics is the set of molecular processes that I think give stability to our gene expression profiles. So it's all the bookmarks that tell a cell to be the kind of cell it is, whether that's a liver cell or a brain cell or a beta cell in the pancreas. And it's, it's the mechanisms that help make sure that those cells, once they've figured out what they are, they stay doing what they're supposed to be doing and they, they stay who they are. And typically we think of these processes and these mechanisms as being the, the set of molecular mechanisms that packages DNA. So you can package DNA really tight so that a certain gene won't ever be expressed. You can package it in a, in a way that it can be inducibly expressed and, and turn on when needed. Or you can package it in a totally open way where no matter what, it will always be expressed and, it can, and the gas pedal can just be pushed down a little bit harder or less. What is it that first interested you in the study of epigenetics? After my PhD, which was focused very much on translational endocrinology and the idea of 
generating future diabetic medications. I joined a mouse lab, so a functional genetics lab where we knocked out certain genes and discovered what they did in the body. And one thing that I always found interesting was that we have these isogenic mice. So we have mice that we can get 10, 20, 30, 100 mice that all have essentially an identical DNA sequence. But no matter what measurement you do, they're all a little bit different. And so it got me thinking about variability or stochasticity, some people would call it, or how, how probabilistically could things go a, a different direction. And almost no matter what scientific measurement you do, there's always some distribution. And sometimes those distributions are odd that you see reproducible patterns that the biggest mouse is also maybe the most active mouse or the most curious one or the one that bites the least. And this started getting me onto these ideas of yeah, reproducible phenotypic patterns that don't have necessarily so much to do with the DNA sequence itself, but rather about stabilizing gene expression patterns in it. Wow, well, get me those less bitey mice. Um, <laughs> we talked about how epigenetics was related to how a cell becomes who it is, but how does epigenetics impact our risk for diseases like diabetes, neurodegenerative diseases, cancer, even obesity? So. It's a good question. I think you can break it down in a few different ways. You, you can think of epigenetics at the cellular level. You can think of epigenetics at a whole organism level. And you can even think of it across generations. So an epigenetic signal goes from parent through the germline, so through the sperm and the egg, to the next generation. Could have lifelong programming consequences. And those have been documented repetitively across almost every organism. We don't understand exactly how that works for most cases, but then we can go right to the other extreme and we think of a cell where the epigenetic program is a little bit different. And then let's take a disease like cancer. If a cancer requires a certain part of the DNA to emerge, so expression at a certain locus, epigenetics is what controls whether that locus is open or not. So the epigenetics could, in a sense, determine whether a cell can easily become cancerous or maybe quite resistant to it. Take that analogy and extend it to, you know, if we talk about metabolic disease, we've recently shown that there's two types of beta cells and they're really defined by epigenetic differences. We call them high cells and low cells because one of them has very high levels of a silent chromatin mark and the other cell type has very low levels. That means in those two cell types, the gene expression patterns are gonna be different. The high cells happen to be much more functional and if you have more of those functional cells, you'll tend to fight off diabetes. From your research, from what you've learned, is there a way I can get more of the, the better beta cells? Or is that not sort of why you're doing this research? I assume part of it is wanting to figure out like, okay, we've got these two populations of beta cells, good ones, less good ones. How do we enrich the good ones? Or is that way off base? <laughs> No, I think that's exactly the motivation. I think it's a little bit early for us to be able to say that. What we do know is that if you manipulate the dosage of the epigenetic marks just a little bit, if we don't take out a whole gene, we don't knock out the whole gene, but we just take out uh, one, one of our two copies of the gene, in this case, the methylation of histone 3 lysine 27. If we increase it or decrease the methylation of that, we can skew the ratio of of kind of the better beta cells to the average beta cell. So it's definitely possible. That then begs the question, well, could we use dietary interventions? And, you know, methionine is a substrate to generate 
methylation. And so in the very simplistic terms, you could imagine, oh, we could increase methionine in our diet, increase methylation, get more of the better beta cells. But that's not, that's not something we've proven. That's the next step. You know, this story is still quite new. Mm-hmm. Your lab has made significant advances, such as identifying disease-causing epigenetic defects in diabetes and defining pathways for healthy versus unhealthy obesity. Could you elaborate on these breakthroughs and their implications? Yeah, so for the, the question about healthy and unhealthy obesity, these alternate de- developmental states that we characterized, and so we've characterized them in mice and identified some of the regulators that are required to buffer against turning on the alternate state. And what's interesting, so then if you look at the whole population and we go to really big databases, we find that about 50% of, de- of obese individuals carry this molecular signature of an alternate developmental program. And all of those individuals have very high inflammatory signatures. They have hyperinsulinemia and they have lots of signatures that are indicative of comorbidities or of what we call unhealthy obesity. So what most people think of as obesity, not a healthy condition. What's less known is that about a third to a half of obese individuals are actually quite metabolically healthy. And there's a big debate going on about whether they're just on the road towards unhealthy. But if you look at the data critically and objectively, there's quite a degree of individuals that are quite overweight that are, are really have zero to no comorbidities. How we interpret all that data put together is that the developmental trajectory, if it's switched on, pushes you into a second state that regardless of your genetic predisposition for obesity, you're always gonna be in a more unhealthy condition, right? So it's like an epigenetically triggered unhealthy state in the context of obesity. And this is gonna be my last question. All of this that we've been talking about, it sort of seems to be leading toward the question of how might we use epigenetics in a clinical setting? I think the the easy way to conceptualize it is precision medicine. Precision medicine has received a lot of attention over the last 10, 20 years, and it should have because we're getting more genetic data on more individuals and understanding in a more refined way all the disease substates that exist out there. Right now, it may be a surprise, but much of precision medicine is based almost exclusively on genetic data doesn't incorporate any or much environmental data, and it doesn't incorporate epigenetic states in it. And so I think what the future will hold, and I don't think it's such a distant future, is the appreciation that, you know, let's be, let's use very crude figures, about a third of who we are is genetic, about a third is the environment we are in or have grown up in, and then another third is a mixture of randomness and alternate states and these kind of probabilistic processes. And so what I see in 10, 20 years is that in the clinical space, we'll have enough tests and enough big data appreciation to be able to accurately place any individual onto kind of the map of disease risk that's informed by their genetics, by their environment, and by their epigenetics. Whereas right now, it's really just that genetic part that's fueling that. Andrew. Thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of your lab next. Thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. And you can learn more about Andrew's work at vai.org. Our thanks to Van Andel Institute for making this conversation possible. And a big thanks to you for listening. 
And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. To find us on podcasting apps, search for Science Magazine. Or you can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Megan Tuck at Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.